Hello everyone, welcome to the Steve Hilton Show. We have a packed episode for you today. So many important issues and some fun as well along the way. We've got a very important conversation about housing. It is a huge issue for our states. We all know that. And we're going to meet someone who's right at the heart of it. The mayor of Huntington Beach, Tony Strickland. And he's, he's engaged in a big battle. With, with Sacramento over this exact issue. But what he's going through and what his community is going through is so relevant to so many people up and down the state. We're going to be talking about that. Jen Horn is here with very interesting views on the Ron DeSantis campaign launch and an update on the California Senate race, which is super interesting. There's a new poll. Wait till you hear the details of the new poll on who is in the lead in the California Senate race. And then a conversation about if you're if you run a business in California, this is something you know all about. Um, it's called PAGA. You may not have heard about this, but it's all about the unbelievable burdens that are now being placed on businesses through these lawsuits. It stands for private attorney general um, actions, and they they're, they're really imposing a huge cost on employers of all sizes in our state. And we've got an attorney who fights the cases on behalf of businesses. He's going to take us through all the details. And there's a ballot initiative on it next year as well, which you should know about. So very informative and very interesting and a lot of fun as well, as I mentioned. Let's start with Mayor Tony Strickland, Huntington Beach. Great to see you. Great to see you, Steve. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Right. So let's just get straight to it. What's going on with why? I can't remember. I can't keep track of all the lawsuits. Yeah. You, you, they're suing you. I think you're suing them. Is that right? Tell yeah, us what's going on. Absolutely right. You know, so what, what's happening here um, is the state is mandating that Huntington Beach, is, which is 95 percent built out, another 5 percent is in a uh, sense of areas like the wetlands uh, that no one wants to do development. But what they're mandating is that we do 13,368 units of low-income, high-density housing in Huntington Beach. For lack of better words, so your listeners can understand and your viewers, what that would do is put up 40 to 50 high-rise, high-density buildings in Huntington Beach. And really, it would urbanize our city. Are, are people here like the suburban uh, coastal community that it is today? In fact, I think I'm the only mayor that actually brought in In-N-Out where people complained that it was too much traffic that it creates because people come to In-N-Out. Um, right. The other day, um, I served in Sacramento. I served as a assemblyman, as state senator. And really what it comes down to, I don't think it's a housing. Uh, they, they claim that this is the housing crisis that the governor comes up with. But if it really was about housing, uh, first of all, the governor, just like COVID, exempts his home county. Uh, Marin has a zero uh, mandate uh, coming from the state. In fact, if you know, he's in the wine business. Napa got a zero. In fact, his home, you know, where all his donors are in Montecito County and or Montecito, where over Winfrey yep. is, they have zero. So all his friends and his hometown has a mandate to build of zero affordable housing. But then he goes Amazing. after someone like us in Huntington Beach and has an astronomical number uh, that, quite frankly, um, what it really comes down to is they want to urbanize California. They don't like suburban communities. And that's why here in California, we have the highest gas tax in the country. We have the highest car registration fee. And when they spend money on transportation, for the most part, they don't spend it on roads and highways. They spend it on things like the bullet train. Uh, as I used to, Tom McClintock used to be my boss a long time ago, the mass transit that masses don't use here in California. Exactly. So look, let's just get dig into it. What is the actual process? So they they've each... Each is it each county is allocated the is it by each county the, what's no, it called no, the housing each, at each, each city, city that mandated uh, that that you know each city has this different mandate 
coming in. And it's called the allocation, isn't it? You're supposed to, and then you're supposed to do a plan and then they have to approve it. Correct. And if they don't approve it, they get to, they get to take you to court. Is that right? And as were you the first city with correct, correct. And, and, and Steve, one of the things we're going to sue on is, um, it's a freedom of speech issue in order to comply with the governor's mandate. You have to do this, uh, thing called statement of overriding consideration. That says the governor's housing mandate is more important. When you're a mayor or a councilman or a councilwoman, you're looking at, okay, if we're going to do this project, does this, do we have water supply? Do we have energy? Does it create traffic and noise and mitigation? Does it hurt the environment? We have to state that the governor's uh, housing crisis is more important than any other issue that we would normally do in mitigation as a local government official. Well, me as a uh, mayor of Huntington Beach, I don't believe that. Um, in fact, if you know, 95% of Californians live in 5% of the area space. There's areas like in San Bernardino where they want to do development and they have the space to do development and the state's coming in and stopping them from doing so. And again, I, I'm always, I, I've always been pro-development, but what I yes. also am is also pro-local government. I believe that government is better government, but government closest to the people is best for the people. I totally agree with that. That's, I mean, I've always, it's been a huge theme for everything I've done in politics and policy, which is the decentralization of power. I just want to make sure I've understood the process. So they've they've said that what you so you, you they you you were given you were handed down this allocation like other cities, and your response is no. And then they say, who sued? And then you're, you're suing each other, right? Is that right. correct? Uh, so but they they, who started it, as it were? Sorry to use right. a kind of playground metaphor, but who's... Yeah, they, so what they did is they tried to beat us to the punch. They heard that we're going to file in federal court. And so they wanted to file in state court ahead of time. So they anticipated some of the things we were doing in the city council. They filed a state uh, their state lawsuit a day before they knew we were going to file a federal case. But 80% of what they put in their lawsuit was moot. It's not applicable to what we're doing here in Huntington Beach. So our city attorney, Michael Gates, is going out to try to throw that out because what they want to do is just amend the lawsuit, even though 80% is is not relevant, um, because they wanted the jurisdiction to be in the state court, and we want the jurisdiction to be in the federal court. And there's many reasons why we want to go to the federal court. But um, So they sued us in state court, and we sued them in federal court. And Okay. I'd, I'd love to unpack that. I mean, what, uh, and, and as you put it in the context of a general move by that, where you say them broadly in, in Sacramento, this is the, I mean, Rob Bonta, the attorney general, the state attorney general, but has, 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 and, and Newsom as well, they, they, it's been a big part of their story, which is we, for years, these housing allocations have been ignored um, and local communities haven't done it. And that's, I'm just giving you their, their narrative and, and, and they, um, and therefore we have this housing crisis because the NIMBYs are blocking development. They won't build the housing that we need, not in my backyard. These suburbs are the enemy and therefore, and for years it's just been allowed to go on, even though they've been violation of it being in violation of the law, no more. We are actually going to clamp down on it. We're going to get tough. We're going to sue them. And Rob Bonta, I just saw, he's just announced that he's setting up a new, he calls it a strike force in mm-hmm. his department that's going to bring in even more lawyers to sue mm-hmm. even more cities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the mindset. I mean, what what is, so, so their case, it seems to me, is kind of, you know, rooted in 
there's a, there's a kind of state mandated process. They claim that you're out of compliance with it. We'll sue you. What is your claim in federal court? What's the what is the basis of your case? Well, we have many different claims. One is the freedom of speech issue. Uh, number two is the fact is uh, Huntington Beach. Sorry, is I don't partner. really understand the freedom of speech issue. What's that? that, well, that they're making you. System, by the way, uh, when we sue, I'm also suing as an individual uh, because right. in order to in order to um, in order to uh, comply with their mandate. I have to agree with this statement of overriding consideration that says your your housing law, your your emergency housing law, supersedes any of the normal things that right. Like, so it's kind example, of compelled their, speech. Their is, it? is that the development uh, says it's going to you know environmentally kill our wetlands, or the fact of the matter is, you know, uh, we don't have enough water or energy to provide for what they're trying to put in. But and that, um, so it's it's a compelled speech thing, is it that they're making correct. you say something that you don't believe? Correct. Correct. Got it. Okay, and then number two, uh, we're a charter city. A charter city. It's in the state constitution that charter cities govern themselves, and so that's another one of our arguments. Is uh, you know, not every city in California is a charter city, but we are uh, here in Huntington Beach. Well, that's so, very interesting. What does a charter city mean? I hadn't heard that term before. Well, it's a it's a terminology of um, how your city was uh, brought forward and, and and incorporated from the very beginning, and in our California constitution. It does clearly state charter cities can govern themselves, and it's in the California Constitution. It's also our city charter that we can govern ourselves. Interesting. Keep going. That's really interesting. Keep going. Well, and uh, again, uh, we're going to talk about the fundamental uh, issue of fairness as well. Like, again, Marin County, where, where Gavin Newsom represents, has a number of zero. Uh, Napa has a number of zero. I see. So that's and, a kind of and, kind of singling you out for special treatment kind correct. of thing, like and a, an astronomical number that they gave to Huntington Beach. Got it. Got it. I see. Well, that that all seems very solid. I mean, and I'm I'm sure you have other. But I, it raises the question within the charter city point. Why not? If it's in the state constitution, why isn't that? Why aren't you taking that to state? The state. Well, we're we're doing both. Legal. Uh, we've again, we think we get more fair uh, represent. Well, we're going to get fair representation either way. We just think that the federal side, we have a better shot than that we would at the state level. But at the same time, I think we have a strong case either way. Um, but either way, you, presumably if it's in the state strong. constitution, that's adjudicated by a state court, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So you've got two parallel cases going on, have you? We or do. is it sequential? We do. Okay, we do. Okay, interesting. We do. So let's turn to the point about, um, let's take head on the NIMBY point, right? Which is, um, and this is an issue I've been spending more and more time on and, and will be, you know, what, you know, having, you know, doing some policy work on, which is it is true that we do have a massive shortage of housing and it's pr produced. It's, it's both having massive negative effects, which is not just people who can't get on the housing ladder mean that they, ha that, that they you know, they actually just can't be here and they leave the state. Or it's just you know raising the cost it contributes to the raising of the cost of living because mortgages are so expensive, rent so expensive, everything's more expensive. So what do you think we should do about that? I'd love to talk maybe a bit more about the San Bernardino point. Yeah, well, San Bernardino wants to do development, and, and the state's stopping them from doing so because of what they call this Joshua tree, which is a cactus. But even when developers come in and say we'll mitigate and we'll do, you know do double the amount of cactuses in another location. The state still comes in and says no. So it's environmental. It's conservation. Yeah, it's environmental. Yeah. And, and, and again, like I'm for, I'm pro development. I've never been called a NIMBY in my life. Um, but again, I think in smart development. Look, I'm for developments that fit Huntington Beach. Huntington Beach is a suburban coastal community, and I believe um, that we should be smartly developed. And predecessors have done a really good job. 
nothing wrong with urban living, Steve. In fact, I almost moved to New York out of, out of uh, college. Uh, but some people like the suburban community yeah. feel. Some people like the urban. And some people, you know, like my friend Doug Lamalfa, he likes he likes the uh, open farm, farm, rural That's living. right. You know, people move to kind of the... I think that's right. And, the, and that's the whole point. The, the, in many ways, the California dream... The foundation Correct. of the California dream was, uh, you know, affordable, abundant housing, and the suburbs are he part froze. of that. You know, you have the, you have your house and the yard. You can see the beautiful weather and enjoy our wonderful climate and and raise your family. You know, that's part of the vision, isn't it? Yeah, no, absolutely. This is California, man. It's a, it's a dream. Like a, a, again, and 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 quite frankly, I tell people, yeah, we do live in Huntington Beach. It is expensive. We live on the beach. Um, you know, tell me a city in California that's not expensive on the ocean. You go from Santa Barbara, Montecito, then you go to, you know, Malibu, then you go to Manhattan Beach, and then you go to here, then you go to Newport Beach, Laguna, um, San Diego, Del Mar. Uh, yeah, because we have the best weather in the world, and it's a right. high demand. But at the end of the day, um, we should do whatever we can to help the supply. I believe in the free market, and I also believe that we – I know what's best as a local elected person in Huntington Beach, what fits Huntington Beach. A bureaucrat yes. like and, and Gavin Newsom don't know what's good for. for are there any people. things that I just want to? Are there any? I mean, are, are you saying that there's no scope for any more housing no, in, in, hunting, fact, in your city, more, or just not thirteen thousand? We've done more for affordable housing than most cities around Orange County already, and we are not getting credit for that. Um, and uh, uh, again, uh, I think. I'm for development. Let's be clear. I want development, and uh, as long as it fits within a suburban coastal community feel. But if we went along with what the governor and the state is mandating, this turns into an urban center. And and that I will tell you, most of the people that live here today would leave Huntington Beach if if the state yeah. had their way. I've got a couple of specific questions. Is there scope? Because this is something you know we hear a lot about. Is there scope for the conversion? of some unused commercial real estate, or is that not really applicable to you? Because you've no, got no, a lot that, of, that's, that's what they want to do. They want to convert. And, and again, uh, Steve for a developer to pencil out. So those 13,300 units, usually it's a 15 or 20% affordable. And the other, the other 80% uh, is market driven mm -hmm. uh, because that's the only way that it will ever pencil out for the developer to actually build that facility. And so, again, when you're talking about the mandate that comes in, you've been, I believe you've been to Huntington Beach. Yeah. You're talking about 40 to 50 high-rise, high-density buildings. And I will say, again, as someone who served in Sacramento, we have a lot of uh, issues coming in. Uh, if they have this mandate, they're, they're not going to help us with the water, the energy, the traffic mitigation, all the things that come. Uh, what about law enforcement and fire? We have our own law enforcement and fire. Uh to, to add that kind of number to Huntington Beach, you know this will be a state unfunded mandate. Uh, they're not going to give us the resources that we need in order to make sure that this place in Huntington Beach stays safe. I was gonna, and on resources, I mean, would would you would you be more, you know, aggressive in your own targets locally if you had control? If you could, if there was more of a financial incentive, if you could get more money, because I mean, the property tax and so on goes straight to Sacramento, then they hand it back to you. Is there anything in that area that would make you want to do more? I'd be open, but Steve, really, I, I'm not for urbanizing Huntington Beach, and right. neither are the citizens here in Huntington Beach. Uh, again, people here love the coastal suburban community that it is, and they don't want an urban center. If they want an urban center, they would move to LA, they move, they would move to San Francisco. 
And again, like, look at the problems in San Francisco. Do we want those problems here in Surf City? Absolutely not. I mean, look at the problems that we have going on in San Francisco. We don't yeah. want anything to do with what Gavin Newsom's done to that city. I, I've often said I'm not going to let Gavin Newsom do to Huntington Beach what he did for San Francisco. It's a very strong case. I mean, and, and you're proudly saying, you know, we're, we're, we, we are pro-suburb. We're a suburb. And that's what we And I think that's absolutely um, clear. And and, and, and and as you know, there's just extreme environmental, like the, the, once you get out of your car. I mean, it really it comes down to they don't want people to drive cars. They don't like suburban communities. Yes. They want to urbanize and they want to get you out of your car. That's why the state policies come down so heavily on the double tax of gasoline, we have the highest gas prices, yeah. car registration fees. And by the way, Steve, that falls disproportionately on hardworking families. I know. They're having to decide between a gallon of milk and a gallon of gas. And also the exact people, by the way, that they claim that they represent, you know, like the working class Latino communities especially. One last question, one last point really, but I'd love you to speak to it. I mean, do you think that, and it's, you've touched on it, but I wanted to have the opportunity to really kind of land the point very clearly, pol the political point, which is, mm -hmm. as you, I mean, I think a, a very strong argument in your favor is, it, you know, Montecito, zero. Mm -hmm. Um, uh -huh. uh, do, and here, thirteen thousand. Do you think right. you're being singled Marin, out, Marin, Marin County? We're, yeah, you're, we're you, I mean, you're a Republican mm -hmm. city. Mm -hmm. Oh, I, no question. I, I, I think this big number. Um, actually, when you look at the demographics, I do think there's a lot of political because when you look at demographics, urban centers to lean more Democrat, and when they want to develop high density, high rise buildings and make it an urban center, if you look at Politically, how people vote in urban communities, they vote more Democrat than they do in suburban communities. There you are. Well, we'll follow it. Uh, Tony, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. Really appreciate it. Let's stay in touch. It's a huge issue and you're right in the heart of it. So uh, thanks for joining us today. We thanks so much it. for having me on. I really, truly appreciate it. Of course. Thank you. All right. There you go. Localism. You know, we believe in it here. Great conversation with the mayor. Um, and now here is Jen Horn to um, get into all the politics that's going on um, at the national level and here in California. Hello, Jen. All right. We have got some big, juicy political stories to get into. Um, in California, we've got news on the Senate race, speculation on the Senate race. But before we get to all of that, we are speaking um, the day after the um well I, i'm just going to be neutral about it the the launch of <laughs> the ron DeSantis uh presidential campaign um on twitter and elsewhere um I, I dying to hear what you thought you know it's very funny steve without even you know talking about who i might be supporting or who i'm not supporting because it doesn't matter i think you know this about me my background is in public relations and so it is hard for me to watch even people that I don't always agree with, like Corinne Jean-Pierre or or Joe Biden come out and say um, these terrible things with that. Well, I want to shout at them some advice. And yesterday I was shouting advice at Ron DeSantis. Right. <laughs> it, was, it was hard to watch. Um, I have so many questions as to who got into the head of Ron DeSantis to tell him that launching on Twitter was the right move, um, especially in this day and age of video. So for a couple of reasons, I think it was kind of a dud and a misstep. And that is, number one, his supporters have been waiting for him to get into this race for a really long time. It's always been the will here, won't he? They had to change some laws in Florida to make it possible for him to even run. So now that he's finally in the race, give your, your supporters the opportunity to share video, audio and video of your announcement. And using Twitter, 
Twitter spaces, it was only audio. And you took that ability of your supporters to share pieces of your announcement with their followers and grow momentum. So that was, I think, misstep number one. Misstep number two is you never, with a presidential announcement, the biggest announcement maybe of your life, give the control to someone else of the announcement. It wasn't Ron DeSantis's fault that there were so many technical glitches, Mm -hmm. but it sounded like a 1990s fax machine with a Skype call going on. I mean, I was listening to it for 20 minutes and it was, it was brutal. Now, as an audio geek, I sat there loving every minute because, you know, you listen for that stuff, but it wasn't great for Ron DeSantis. So giving over that control, um, I think was probably a mistake, although Elon Musk and, and Twitter own some of that as well. But I, I think, number three, you are the governor of Florida. You are running for president because you were a great governor and you have a lot of successes to tell the country, right? And so you want to draw comparisons as to how great your state did compared to, say, our state of California, which was so closed down and so much government intervention. So I, I think that he had an opportunity to go in front of a church, a shopping mall, a business in Florida. I mean, heck, you go in front of Walt Disney World and say, look, I'm not afraid to take on the mouse. I'm not afraid to take on the swamp. Or you could go to a shopping mall. Hey, see this business back here? This stayed open during all of COVID as compared to many of the blue states that were shut down. He had the opportunity to be there. And I don't know if he was afraid that he wasn't going to get the supporters to show up or if he was afraid that some of the maybe Trump people would come with Trump signs and interrupt his flow. But I really think he would have had a greater, more exciting push if he mm-hmm. had actually been able to demonstrate his accomplishments in front of a crowd of people with shareable clips that people who weren't there could send out to their yeah. followers. It's, a, it's it's such a great point about the Florida um, aspect because, you know, people will have different views um, on him across the country, but he's very popular in Florida mm-hmm. and he just won a massive landslide victory, a right. massive landslide victory. So you'd think that getting a good crowd in Florida is not hard. Yeah. I mean, Tim Scott was able to get one in South Carolina. And I would say that, well, probably I love Tim Scott. I think he's a very nice guy and he's and he's popular in his home state that if he was able to draw a crowd, you would think Ron DeSantis would be able to be able to get a few friendlies in a high school gymnasium and make it look a little bigger than just an audio take on, on Twitter. And I think the other mistake is after people waited for so long, when he came out, he read prepared remarks, which also wasn't oh, quite Because that's interesting. Dynamic. I hadn't heard that because I was on the road yesterday and I was in meetings and events all day long so I didn't hear it and I got back very late yeah and so I, I've, I've just seen sort of snippets of coverage and so on yeah I it, didn't realize that so I thought it was a kind of conversation it thing. turned into that but as soon as the technical stuff cleared up and, and literally it was about 25 minutes by my count of just back and forth and not getting signed in and then silence I mean it was a real disaster and then 25 minutes in when they finally start he starts reading and so you you go wait a second I was just waiting for 25 minutes to hear the reading of a statement. And then they started asking him some questions. And, I, and I'll and i say that later in the day, one of the colleagues on, on my station, AM870, he was on with Mark Levin later in the day. Mm-hmm. And during that time, he was so much more compelling because he was having a conversation. Right. And I just felt that there was... Um, just a, a letdown, I think, perhaps, because there were so many people waiting for DeSantis to get into the race. But I know his hardcore supporters aren't going anywhere. He's, I've heard, raised a million dollars in the first 24 hours since his announcement. Um, so that's all good news. We'll see. It's still relatively early. I just I feel like he may he may have wanted to explore this a little earlier and probably in more dynamic ways if he really wanted to make a splash. 
And what do you think of the argument that um, I've heard some people say, well, you know, the whole point was to show that the, it's a new world of media, the traditional media, including what people might say of as traditional conservative media that would include you know radio like yeah yeah like like we're on to you know your your station and fox news my tv station you know they they would say well that's that's the old you know that's the old way of doing it and that's all about twitter and online and etc and you've got the announcement that that you know the daily wire is going to be all on twitter and etc mm-hmm. etc so what about all of that well i think it's important to include it in your announcement but the truth is the bulk of his supporters are probably not even on Twitter. And if they are, they're certainly not on Twitter spaces. I I consider myself to be pretty up on the trends. You know, I use Twitter. I had never used Twitter spaces until yesterday. That was my first right. time was to hear that announcement. I think he could have, if he wanted to use Twitter, he should have streamed it. Um, there's a way that you can do that on Twitter. Elon Musk could have streamed out the conversation instead of just doing audio. Um, and I think it would have been a little bit better. But look, I think that when you make when you have something that was a little lackluster, there's always going to be an attempt to spin things. And so, of course, now this they're spinning that this broke the internet. There was so much interest. You know, he broke <laughs> yeah. the internet. Um, I'm sure it's about new media and all of that. I really think somebody, the wrong somebody, probably got into Ron DeSantis's ear and said, "This is going to be awesome," and then it kind of wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think, I mean, it's not the end. Look, how many people do you remember? We remember Donald Trump because he came down the escalator and it was splashy and Donald Trump is a media person. And so that really stood out. But mm-hmm. how many people do you really remember how they launched their presidential campaigns? Or, in the, and, 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 or you could say, I mean, I've got one that, the one that immediately comes to mind is someone who had a fantastic launch, like a great launch. And totally flopped, and that was Kamala Harris. Totally, that's time. right. She had an amazing event. It was amazing. It was in, in yeah. Oakland. It was like I think at twenty thousand people, like really big crowd, mm-hmm. and it looked fantastic. And she looked presidential. I remember thinking, "Wow, this is really impressive." You know, you're right. That was a good one. Sort of objectively, forget about you know what you think of her politics. Just in the pure professionalism, and stagecraft, and just you know, and you know, emphatic nature of it. It was fantastic. Yeah. And then she went nowhere. I I think also just because we all know the dynamics in the Republican Party right now, it's Trump versus DeSantis and everybody's been buzzing about this. I think it is extra important when people, especially when poll numbers have been favoring Trump, that you want to prove that the people want you in the race. Because one of the things that Ron DeSantis is going to have to overcome is that now that the support has has shifted back to Trump, he had it at the beginning of the year, DeSantis, mm-hmm. but now Trump's got it. And if you look at the polling and the support in the party, it's all going behind Trump at this point. If you want to prove that you're in the race for the right reason, I think you need to prove that you have people behind you and that you're not really the puppet of the establishment like a lot of Trump supporters are wanting to paint you as. And so I think having people People involved with the campaign, real people would have probably been more effective. But again, it's early. He'll have plenty of time to connect with people. But that will be the challenge, I think, because Donald Trump, say what you will about him, he does connect with people. I know, but I mean, but that's the thing. I mean, funnily enough, that brings up one of the, the, you know, another consequence of this is that, again, I'm not making a judgment either way. I'm just, you know, relaying Mm -hmm. that it has prompted another round of conversation around the the allegation that DeSantis do, doesn't have people skills yeah that he just is really bad with people um 
and is uncomfortable and doesn't want to interact and so on. I mean, I, I don't, I, I literally don't know. I, don't I have either. no evidence because, either way. Uh, you know, I've talked to, and I know she's been on, on this show before, Jennifer Van Lar with Red State, who mm -hmm. is a DeSantis supporter and a fan. And she said when she went to the Reagan library and saw him in person, that he was great. He was connecting with the crowd. I personally have not seen that side of Ron DeSantis. And we all know you need to have, and I don't care what your beliefs are, you need to have that it factor if you want to go to the highest office in the land. It's look at Al Gore and George W. Bush. George W. Bush was more likable, more mm -hmm. compassionate. I would say even Trump over Hillary Clinton. President Trump was just, he connected with blue collar workers. And so I think and that- And he had that sense of humor. Yes. That's the thing that everyone forgets about Trump. And you saw it in He's that funny. town hall the other week. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, you just can't help, you know. And of course there are the absolute haters who you can't, you know, just completely, you know, can't bear stand a moment of him and the, literally appears on the TV and is like, he's the devil. Right. But but a normal objective person who's not obsessed with politics and not kind of steeped in in in, in it one way or the other, just like, actually, he's kind of funny. He, he's totally funny. I mean, that's what I think. And just from from my perspective and full full disclosure, because I feel like I want to cover this very fairly. I Today, if the election were held, I would vote for Donald Trump again. I, thought, I think he was a great president. He did great things. I was not turned off by the mean tweets. That's just me. I know a lot of people were. I don't, as a Trump supporter, want to poo-poo, if you will, in the nicest way possible, Ron DeSantis, because I think he's a great governor of Florida, and I, I would love to vote for him yes. in four more years. So I think we have to be really careful as a That's party a great point. not yeah. to tear each other apart, not to shred each other, even if we may not agree with the candidate. I would like to see, and I think Ron DeSantis has got a couple of challenges. Number one, he's got to work on being more personable, being a little more funny, less robotic. And number two, where I think there was a great misstep, and, and this has nothing to do with his accomplished accomplishments of governor, because I think he was great. But mm -hmm. when Alvin Bragg, the DA in New York, went after Donald Trump, and he kind of tried to make an awkward joke about it, um, most conservatives now feel that they are being, um, that they are being persecuted for their beliefs. And so if you are going to be representing the conservative movement or the Republican Party, even if it's a guy you don't like, even if it's a guy you're going to run against, it's probably better not to make a joke about it and just come out and say, we don't want the weaponization of government against anyone. And mm. I think it would have been, I think that really was kind of the shifting point where DeSantis started to lose a little favor within the party and Trump got some back. But it's early in the summer. Trump can say a lot of crazy things. Ron DeSantis can say a lot of great things. Things may shift around. And we still have candidates like Larry Elder and Tim Scott and Vivek Ramaswamy and Nikki Haley and probably Mike Pence and Chris Christie by the time this is all done that are still going to make an impact. And we'll see how it all shuffles out. Yes. And then and then to add to the list, Doug Burgum, the governor of oh, North Dakota. Well, yeah. Who, <laughs> who may, many people won't have heard of. If you if, if people who... who um, religiously watch my show and why don't yep. you if you don't um i had he was great actually i had him on the uh, the other week he's got a really cool project which is to build the um uh the presidential library that amazingly there's no presidential library for teddy roosevelt that is our, unbelievable you know, i saw that on your show yeah who, who everyone a lot of people say he's their favorite president i mean people pick lincoln reagan you know and, and teddy roosevelt is often up there mm -hmm. um and uh, he doesn't have a presidential library because he's originally from New York and they hate him in New York and they right. were taking down his statue. So he's good. He's a cool guy. He's an entrepreneur, done very well. Doug Burgum. Yeah. The only one I just, and I, you know, my attitude is uh, let's see the process play. I think you put it really well that, 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 um, that actually whatever your view, you know, there's no question that Ron DeSantis is an incredibly 
um, effective and actually inspirational because for those of us during the pandemic, seeing the madness that was going on everywhere, to see someone fighting the madness and standing up for science and common sense was really inspirational, actually. Um, So I I think that's exactly right. And you got these and people have, you know, we've discussed this before, Larry Elder, really interesting things to say. Mm -hmm. We should hear from him, Vivek and so on. I'm not quite, I haven't heard anything that interesting from Tim Scott. I'm going to say this on Sunday. I mean, you know, he's very nice, but okay, mm-hmm. what's the, you know. He's where... very optimistic and he yeah. has a, he has a story to tell about how his grandfather was picking cotton and now he's running for president and the first black Republican to serve in the United States Senate. I mean, he has a compelling No, I get it. Story, but I, just, but I think you're right about the messaging. What's well, the message? You know, right, same with Nikki next? Haley, you know, mm-hmm. like she's, she keeps going on about being a different generation. Okay. But what's the message? What, yeah. what's, what do you, whereas if you look at Larry, they're very clear message same with Vivek um I think I will see what Doug Bergen has to say the one person who's in the race so I literally I I, I don't think it, so my point is I'm open to all to hearing from all the people mm-hmm. um running except I have to be I mean Asa Hutchinson who I literally cannot understand the point of that. it's a little <laughs> snoozy I know like, I just don't get it and also I think about? as much as I think Chris Christie served a, an important role at some point I think he is going to get into the race simply to yell at Donald Trump. And I don't think that we need that right now. I just, there's already enough yelling. There's a lot of people doing that. Right. And so I think that it's already going to be fine. You don't even know if Trump's going to go to the first debate. So he's not going to probably make it past that. I just, I I feel like that could be kind of a waste of energy. And he does. He is one of those people who will suck a lot of air out of the room. But I love this country. I love the primary process. I geek out on it. So the more the merrier. Bring them all in. Let's hear from them. And one really interesting thing, Mark Levin always knows how to boil it down. He said something interesting talking to Ron DeSantis yesterday. And he said, you know, there are a lot of differences and similarities between you, meaning Ron DeSantis, Ronald Reagan, and Donald Trump. And one of the things that he brought up, and I think it is so true, and these two unfortunately would be a power ticket. It will never happen. It never could happen because they're both in Florida. But DeSantis and Trump both do really good things, but they look through different lenses. Ron DeSantis is a constant, he's a student of the Constitution, and he operates through that scope. He's looking at everything constitutionally. He's looking at everything through the law. Donald Trump looks at stuff, not necessarily through the scope of the constitution or the law, but common sense, what makes sense to people. That's why he connects with people more. And I thought that was really smart insight from Mark Levin. And actually, Governor DeSantis agreed with that statement and said, that's right. I operated during the pandemic through the scope of the law and maintaining people's constitutional freedoms. I think Donald Trump uses the constitution because he understands it. He has people around him that'll say, you know, you can't do this or you can do that. But he looks at something and he goes, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And I yes, think that's exactly. why he brings more people in with him. So we'll see yeah. how this, how how it all plays. But I loved that. I, I think that's a really smart way of looking at how these two guys both accomplish really good things and they both are very similar, but the way they, they, they run is a little different. Very interesting. Great, great um, observations there, Jen. Thank you. Let's talk about the, um, the Senate race here in California, as I mentioned, there's some, well, I mean, there's, there's interesting news on Eric Early, <laughs> who's, who's been our guest here. And I know, um, you know him well, and also this spec, which I can't believe this is real, but we must share it with our mm-hmm. audience because it's so hilarious, uh, which is speculation about who would Gavin Newsom <laughs> appoint if Diane Feinstein, which I guess maybe looks more likely won't make it through till next November and will actually step down before the election. 
Yeah, there's a lot of stories buzzing. And at first you think it's a joke, but everybody's reporting on it. Fox News, Business Insider. Um, many of us saw the video of Dianne Feinstein returning to uh, to the Senate. She did not look good. And I'm saying this to you empathetically because I yeah. actually don't agree politically with much of Dianne Feinstein's work, but I respect her. She's been a part of California's history, our fabric, my yeah. goodness. But she looked terrible when she came back to the Senate. And last week she was talking to a reporter and arguing with the reporter that she had never even been gone from the I Senate. So sad. there's clearly some things going on. If she can't make it through, Gavin Newsom is going to have to pick someone to take her her place. And he has promised to pick a black woman. And this is where Democrats sadly get themselves in trouble because they play identity politics yes. over anyone else and then they get in trouble. So that means he's going to have to pick a black woman to deliver on his promise. The black woman in the race for Senate right now is Barbara Lee. So many people believe that he would pick her, which almost then gives her a leg up on everyone else because she becomes the quasi incumbent. And Gavin Newsom also has a friendship with Adam Schiff in the race and Katie Porter. So he's now painted himself into a little corner going, what do yep. I do? So the reports are that he may look at someone like Oprah Winfrey, <laughs> Senator I mean, Oprah, as, uh, as the next senator from California, which if that happens, game over, guys. Schiff can go home. Porter can go home. Barbara Lee can yeah. go home. People will vote for Oprah. But she's an amazing – look, again, I, 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 I wouldn't sign up to every single thing she said about everything, but I think she's an absolutely monumental – kind of inspirational she's figure she's amazing you know she's just built this incredible business from nothing she's an entrepreneur she's mm -hmm. this great cultural leader she's actually had some incredible you know she's a absolutely and epic kind of scale person you know so of course that would just blow everything else out the water do you think there's a chance i mean is this really you know is there something to this i mean there, i guess there's one way of thinking about it which is would it be kind of temporary you know put put her there for a bit and see what she can do maybe get I, I don't know what's the theory well think about what's happened over the last couple of years especially for those members of the democrat party when things get tough who do they always bring up they always brought up oprah and they always brought up michelle obama yes. right those were their yes. two get out of jail free cards if stuff gets real we're going to usher those people in now it's died down for oprah a little bit because she's been out of public spotlight, her network and everything has kind of died down. She's still a megastar, of course, but you don't hear that quite as much. Um, it doesn't matter to me who Gavin Newsom appoints, because I know that I probably won't agree with much of what they do. Um, they will also probably operate in lockstep with the Democrat Party. I would tell you, of all the four, though, if you had Oprah on the ballot next to Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, my vote would be for Oprah Winfrey, because yeah, at least me, she's likable. At least you too. know she's run a business and that she tries to be honest, I think, and vulnerable with her audience. And she's human and, yeah. and she cares about and, and she's, you know, I, I completely agree with that. Um, yeah. Interesting. Well, I mean, it's, but exactly the, the the political one is exactly the right one, which is like this is what happens when you when you just put identity politics above everything else. And we don't know for sure if she's really even interested in this, or if she would just do it temporarily to fill a spot if it were to open yeah. up, or if maybe she would like it. And you know who should be worried is old Chucky Schumer because if Oprah gets elected to the Senate. Every question will go to Oprah Winfrey from the news media. They will for, forget Chuck Schumer, forget Ted Cruz, forget yes. anybody that you would normally look at. Um, there is some interesting polling out, though, Steve. Okay. Um, this is the first poll and hot off the presses, actually, as we speak today. And I'm going to pull it up for you. This is um, the first polling for the Senate race in California. And it is from a Berkeley IGS poll. So. 
they work on California politics all the time. Um, the big number is 32% of people are still undecided in California. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's the best day on the planet for Eric Early, who is the Republican in the race, who is getting 18% of the vote. He is in first place right now, followed by, and this surprises me a bit, Katie Porter at 17%. Mm -hmm. 14% say Adam Schiff. 10% mm -hmm. say someone else and 9% say Barbara Lee. That's really interesting. Isn't it I though? agree with you. Yeah. I mean, it's very, very interesting and it completely um, confirms the kind of theory. And Eric and Eric and I talked about this. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you did as well. That His point, which is like, actually, if, you know, if, if I'm there, um, I've, I've got a very strong chance of getting into the top two, which is the thing that matters right. in the first instance, because there'll be a split field and, and that's the way it goes. And, and this, this absolutely confirms that. What we don't need right now is any other Republican entering yes, the race. Yes, exactly. Great point. And this yeah. is how we save California. You and I often have these conversations about what to do. Once we have a candidate in the race as a Republican, we need to let Democrats kind of scratch votes away from each other because that's what will happen. If all of those Democrat votes are added up against Eric Early, well, he doesn't win. But if he gets into the top two, then all of a sudden he can start fundraising from inside the state, out of the state. He actually becomes a threat to whomever the Democrat candidate is. So this is a great lesson for Republicans to stick out. And I've heard some rumblings that someone like Steve Garvey from the formerly of the LA Dodgers and the San Diego Padres might jump into the race. I've heard Rob Lowe might jump into the race. And man, I think I wish they would have done well, that as a six Republican? months ago. As a Republican. I wish they would have done it six months ago because right now we have the optimal situation happening and that's where it should stand because we should be concentrating on winning, yeah. not necessarily the egos that run around politics. Well, that's a terribly important poll for Eric Early then because yeah. that sends a very clear message to anyone thinking about it that actually, why, why, we, why do you want to be a spoiler? Right. Why would you want to spoil this? Because right now, if things hold, and they probably will, especially if it gets more vicious on the Democrat side, and there are yeah. going to be more people, you know, scratch, especially Porter and Schiff seem to be the front runners here. But if you add up, you see, look, if you add up, where where are we? Um, let's do my, so it's nine for Lee. Uh, what did you say? 17 for Porter. 17 for Porter, 10 for Adam because Schiff. Because it's 36%, right? So you've got yeah. 36% Democrats and 18 for the Republican and 32 undecided. So look, even if you look at um, that 30, I mean, th there's there's a lot of, um, and other there was an other in there, wasn't there? There was but a 10% the someone else. Mm -hmm. So look, if you just in, even if if you get to that, you remember that in the president, it's in the gubernatorial race, and in fact most of these statewide races actually, there's a sort of baked in Republican base number of around yeah. you know thirty nine forty percent, seventy thirty in some way around there, yeah. But you know, but no, but sixty forty sometimes. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. like, and so you could easily see that that that, that you know that eighteen percent creeping up and up and up. And these other people continuing to stay in that kind of a third, a third, a third among the Democratic vote, which would get, which would, you'd even see Eric winning in the actual election coming first, yeah. not just getting in the top two, which is really interesting if you don't have a spoiler. And then you see the spoiler people might say, well, Eric Early, he's too Trumpy, whatever, um, mm -hmm. too ultra MAGA, to use the terminology that they all use, and therefore couldn't win in the general election. And so I, let's say you're Rob Lowe, I have a better chance of winning in the mm -hmm. general election. Okay, fine. Maybe you do. But if you mess it up by joining, you're not going to have a chance to yeah. show that because you won't get into the top two. 
and you've now the, ruined it for everybody. Exactly. So and it's a very the, important point. The, one yeah. of the good things that I've said about Eric Early, and he hasn't shied away from his Trump support, and I don't think that people really should lie about who they are. You know, you have to be honest with the voters. But what he has said, and I heard him say this on Monday, I was sitting down with him, and I'm actually going to name names here, sitting with Eric Early. And I don't know if you remember Steve Edwards, but Steve Edwards has been in news in Los Angeles and across the country, really, for years. He is a gem. And he is an independent. He is, uh, he, you know, is conservative on some issues, liberal on other issues. Very interesting to talk to because he won't just back away from a conversation. He'll talk to you. And so he was talking to Eric Early about how you run as someone who's connected with that Donald Trump, I guess we could say stink in California, right? And so Eric Early said, look, Steve, I'm not running for Republicans. I am running for people in California who say that the state is headed in the wrong direction. That is incredibly yes. important because the most powerful voting bloc in California are the no party preference, That's independent right. voters who switch back and forth. Sometimes they vote, sometimes they don't. And you need someone who says, you know what, enough of the craziness. We just need to try something different. And I think that is the message for California. And that's where exactly. Eric Early is right now. And I think it's a smart place to be. Exactly. And just to tease our audience a little bit, um, I myself will have something to say about all of that um, in the not too distant future in a Can't couple of weeks time. So there we are. And you know what it is, Jen. But let's You're such a teaser, though. I need all the <laughs> exactly. details, the juicy details. <laughs> exactly. We'll get to it very soon. I promise. Jen, great to see you as always. You Thank too, you. Steve. Thanks. You see, I told you that was an interesting poll. Very, very interesting. That race is going to be interesting. Uh, we'll be following it, of course. Um, but now here's the issue we mentioned at the top of the show. Um, it's one of those things that doesn't get much attention. But if you run a business, you certainly know all about this. This issue is about a pretty obscure part of our legal code in California, but it's a big impact on businesses of all sizes. It's called PAGA, Private Attorney General Act. PAGA, that's how people refer to it. We're going to find out all about it now with an attorney who is very, very much in the thick of the fight um, around PAGA lawsuits. He's going to explain all about it and why we should care. Here he is, Alden Parker. Alden, great to see you. Um, it's, it's one of these, this conversation I've been really looking forward to because this is something that is new to me um, newish to me. We have had one previous guest that talked about it, but not not in such a clear way um, as we're about to, because we're going to focus on this. But I was just t telling you, we were just I was just in a meeting. We were just talking about this I was in a meeting um, recently with a group of people. And I and I introduced the topic we're about to discuss, PAGA, um, which stands for Private At Attorney General Actions. Um, and I, I thought I had to spell it out. And I said, well, have you heard about these private? And they all scream, PAGA, we hate PAGA. So it's really interesting to me that this is clearly something that is driving a lot of people crazy um, up and down the state. And so for the benefit of those who don't know what it is, um, and, and, and also by way of introduction, could you just lay out for us, and I'll give you as much time as you need, um, what this is all about. What is PAGA? What are these private attorney general actions? Where did it come from? And and what's your role sure. um, in 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 um, in combating all this? Yeah, so it was a it was a law that was enacted back in 2003. Uh, the Private Attorney General's Act or PAGA uh, came out, and and it deals with mostly with wage and hour matters. Uh, it started out of a concern regarding abuse of the use of unfair competition laws in the Business and Professions Code. And mm -hmm. so the legislature created a what was supposed to be and billed as a limited recovery of penalties only, non-wages, for wage and hour violations. 
that could be brought by one employee on behalf of all other employees at a business for those same violations, for those same penalties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was limited to one year statute of limitations, so it would only go back one year. Uh, and it started off, I think, as intended, very slow, relatively small, uh, but giving employers a chance to correct their issue and not get devastated by by this law. It's great. So let's just could, just stop you there, which is wage and hour violations. Again, for those who don't know exactly what that means. Sure. Could you explain what they are? Yeah. So this could be uh, for someone that's claiming they were not permitted to take meal periods, uh, rest periods, uh, that they worked off the clock, that an employer uh, had them work without going ahead and tracking their time and getting paid for it. Uh, the allegations end up being very uh, minute in this area. Sometimes it's for one or two minutes at a time. Someone claiming that they had to wait in a line to uh, clock in at a clock at a time clock, or they had a security check and there's two minutes of time there or 30 seconds of time. And they're looking to recover that and aggregate it over an entire work. Right. And, and so this is, this is, it started off, so wage and hour, and is wage and hour violations, by the way, is that a legal term or a, a statutory term? Is that something, or is it just a sort of thing that people say? You know, it's a, it's a way to compartmentalize a, a broad spectrum of different labor code violations in California. Uh, right. And so we just refer to it as, as wage and hour law. And that we're and it, but it doesn't apply to all workers, does it? Uh, it applies to all workers, regardless of industry. There are some nuances having to do with if you're a member of a collective bargaining agreement, whether that CBA goes ahead and covers that violation or not. But uh, PAGA applies to all all employers. I represent, for, for the most part, food chain employers, meaning from agriculture all the way through restaurants and hotels and into grocery stores. Uh, and that, that food chain employer experiences a tremendous number of these. I thought there was some kind of li- uh, income limit, like I, I've heard this term, not exempt emplo- non-exempt employees. Well, so the exempt, non-exempt are, are actually where someone's misclassified as a, as a salaried employee when they should be paid hourly and paid overtime. Uh, that can certainly trigger PAGA penalties, uh, but it, it doesn't, it, it's not solely relating to that. Most of the time, these are brought by hourly workers uh, that are claiming- a, sal- a salaried worker's exempt, can uh, ex- um unable to bring claims under this or no just they can the... click and claim they were misclassified and they should be paid over time and they should be entitled to meal periods salaried employees could do that uh, they could bring claims under a certain labor code provision that's pretty ticky tacky about a name being wrong on a pay stub there's a labor code section 226 that allows for penalties for having mm-hmm. the wrong name of the employer or there's a host of information that needs to be on a pay stub that could not be on there. And then there could be PAGA penalties from that as well. Okay. So before we move on to, to how it's developed and the, and the problems it's now causing, one last question on the origins. What, what, why the name Pri- private attorney? What, what's, what's that route? Um, where's that come from? Well, so there's a fiction that was created by this law where someone submits a letter to the labor workforce development agency, uh, the LWDA, And they wait a certain amount of time for that agency to decide whether they're going to sue or not. Uh, If the agency doesn't pick up the lawsuit, uh, then the person after a certain number of days, after 60 days, is able to sue. And they are essentially anointed the attorney general of California without an election. And Mm -hmm. then they sue on behalf of 
the agency, the attorney general. And they bring this lawsuit as a private attorney general action that has to be approved by courts. What a weird. And the lawyers go ahead and run the show. Right. And was that design? Why Why that design? I mean, is there something significant in that? Or is it, is it just, is it actually just the name? And it doesn't really... You know, it, it ended up having some significance in a case called Iskanian that had to do with whether you could force individuals to arbitrate uh, a PAGA claim when they brought it on behalf of the attorney general. And the California Supreme Court said you can't force someone to arbitrate this claim because it's the attorney general's claim. Because this person is a private attorney general and the employer, you don't have an agreement with the attorney general, you just have an agreement with this employee. Right. So, so okay. So it was intended to make it easier for workers to be, um, to, to kind of get fair treatment as it was. I'm just trying to sort of put myself in the, in the place of the, you know, the good, assume good intentions, right? It was like, we, okay, workers, can get um, treated poorly, and we want to make sure that they they have a chance to rectify that. And we can't wait around for government agencies which to, to sort of deal with every minute claim across California. So we're going to create a mechanism whereby we can shortcut that whole process and make it quicker and easier for any employee to rectify a workplace dispute that, that where they've been poorly treated. Is that the kind of nice way of putting the theory? That's correct. I mean, it was, it was meant so that the DLSE wasn't fully funded, so that private private people can bring these claims. Uh, if there's a recovery of penalties, 25% of the net recovery uh, to the workers actually goes to uh, the workers. 75% goes to the state. And so <laughs> in the end, these penalties end up going to the state of California. 25% wow. get distributed to the employees. But it was a way for the state to get some penalties at a time where the traditional mechanism for these claims was a class action. Uh, and at the time it was passed, class actions were uh, it was hotly contested whether an employee signing an arbitration agreement that waived the ability to bring a class action, whether that was enforceable. Uh, ultimately, it was found that it was they have to go to arbitration on behalf of themselves. This was another avenue to pursue a different type of claim and for the state to get penalties as well. God, that, that's a whole other thing, but I don't want to interrupt the narrative because now I'd love to move you on to, okay, so that was the, how it started. <laughs> How's it going? Well, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's had some twists and some turns. Uh, you know, there's, there was a great report uh, by uh, Cavia, which is a, an organization that follows these types of things. It's the California Business and Industrial Alliance. And in 2021, they released a report. There are uh, approximately since 2016, only 12 PAGA cases that were actually brought by the state through this process. So PAGA letters get filed with the LWDA with the intent that the state might decide this is one worth pursuing. And there's about 6,000 that get filed a year with the LWDA. And since 2016, they've brought 12. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's a paltry amount that are going through this process. The vast majority of those 6,000 PAGA claims a year are being brought by private attorneys 
after the state doesn't pick it up. Right. And then, so is it, has it expanded? I mean, you said at the beginning, it started with wage and hour violations. Has it expanded beyond that? No, right now it's still, it's still related to specific items that can bring, uh, that can fall under and be entitled to, to these PAGA penalties. Most of them are wage and hour. I believe that you can bring a claim also under this arcane reasonable seating in the workplace claim, uh, where uh, it was actually a fairly pejorative reason why this came into play. But during World War II, uh, it was determined that uh, people that were filling in for individuals that went overseas to fight in World War II, uh, they might need to sit down during the workplace. They may not be as strong as the individuals that left to fight the war. And so there was this reasonable seating law that came into effect and stayed on the books. Uh, and PAGA penalties can recover for those as well for not having seats in the workplace. So, so there's a bunch of stories. Tell me how this fits in. These are, these are kind of stories I've heard from real business business um, owners as I've been talking about the, the kind of you know burdens that, that that are increasingly placed on business in California. And of course, I should say, you know, we all want a clean, decent, safe workplaces where workers are treated well. I mean, that's 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 what we want. Um, but what we also want is fairness on, in both directions, including for employers who are, are creating jobs and wealth, and we want them to continue to do that um, and not burden them so unduly. That I mean, I've heard many stories of people just leaving uh, the state or packing up their business, whatever, because they just can't cope with a lot of these claims. So a lot of the story, there's the wage and hour ones you've mentioned, but there's what, what, what category is it where you, for, uh, these are real examples, you know, um, somebody... Uh, had a lawsuit where they had to pay out thousands of, um, I mean, and this adds up, you know, like some of the penalties that are paid. I mean, someone said, you know, their business is half a million a year, you know, when you add it all up. And and it, but the other, there are other categories, for example, someone, this was a real story, which was the wrong color blue for the disability site in the parking lot or something. Um, and also the, the urinal being at the wrong height, the sink being at the wrong height. Um, something about um, someone was, you know, they, they were complaining about being scalded by hot water, even though the hot water tank wasn't connected. You know, there's all these scams that that, that seem to go on. Sure. Um, where where should we where do we put those? Is that not PAGA? That's something else. Well, it, it certainly is a segment of of PAGA claims that are over relatively minuscule, you know, issues like an employee that texts their manager. Uh, texting is such an ubiquitous form of communication that managers and employees are commu are communicating sometimes by text about schedules. Can you pick up a shift? Uh, or the employee reporting that they that they can't make it that day. That turns into a claim by that one employee where they're representing themselves and others for PAGA penalties for the failure to reimburse for the reasonable usage of the cell phone under what? Labor Code 2802. And people are seeking... Not the $25 that it might have taken to have a cell phone plan, but they're seeking $100 per pay period in PAGA penalties and attorney's fees for that for that claimed violation. But what, what is the point there? Like the cost of sending the text message? The, which is built into their plan, by the way. Uh, but what it, the theory is, is it's an attorney-driven theory that... The employer has a system where they are requiring the employees to incur certain expenses. Those are business-related expenses. And if you don't reimburse the employee for that reasonable usage of their cell phone, uh, 
uh, you can be subjected to penalties. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what, what? I mean, okay. I mean, it does sound correct. What, what about the blue paint color for the disabled parking? Those aren't part of those aren't part of PEGA, but they're certainly an abuse. I mean, the disabled access cases are fairly legendary at this point. But what the what PAGA does that's different than the disabled access cases, where a disabled access case might be one individual literally suing hundreds of places, but having individual lawsuits over and over again. This mm -hmm. is one person suing one employer, but about a hundred or hundreds of employees. And the ticky-tacky violations in that point, or the potential violations, and the threat of those violations and penalties are so big that it forces lots of employers into a very uncomfortable decision to uh, go ahead and pay. And well, because you know, they just can't be they they why they don't want to keep fighting it. It's just costly and time consuming. They're they're not going to take the risk of of the catastrophic penalties at the end that could result over relatively ticky tacky stuff like a, a minute in a line waiting for uh, to clock in and out of work or claims that someone couldn't take their 10 minute rest break. They're disputed claims. There's going to be employees that say, no, it was easy to take a 10 minute break. There's going to be others, usually former employees. They'll say it was too busy to take a 10 minute break. But when you aggregate them over hundreds of employees, the potential risk is so great mm -hmm. that it forces people to go ahead and consider settlements that they that they really can't afford just to sort of be in this mindset of okay i'm wounded not dead that's really what the choice is and yeah. these employers are having to make that very uncomfortable choice over so and give us a sense of the scale of this like how many you, you know like the total is there any estimate of the total cost or the or how how I mean, how does this affect every, does every business, is every business kind of thinking about this? If almost every business is thinking about this of any size, once you get to about 20, 30 employees, you're thinking about it a lot. There are certain industries that I think it's more, uh, it's front of mind unless they've actually experienced one of these. Uh, the agricultural industry is under assault in this area. Uh, different type of crops have really been targeted in this area. Restaurants, this is on everybody's mind that owns a restaurant because the turnover of employees is so great that it mm -hmm. leads to more and more of these claims. But the size is startling, and I'll give you just some simple math. You know, if there's 6,000 of these claims a year, and we know the average, as of 2021, the average settlement was $350,000. Now, this wow. is not what people pay their defense attorney to defend them. That's the average settlement. And I know lots of people that would think that's a great deal. I'll take that any day of the week because they paid a lot more than that. But if the average is 350 and there's 6,000 of them, that is $2.1 billion a year. And that's the attorneys amazing. take roughly yeah. a third of that settlement which means they're incentivized by $700 million a year to bring these claims. So the, so the attorney fees are, on, are not on top of that. They're, they're part of that. Typically, they're part of the settlement. Most people are negotiating a gross settlement amount, and then uh, the plaintiff's attorneys apply to the court for a certain percentage of the, of the whole. Right. So, they get, so, so this is a racket for the lawyers, basically. That's, that's really what you're saying politely.
the lawyers are doing are, are unfortunately has created a bit of a good old fashioned California gold rush. And okay. the attorneys on the other side of the of the V for me um, are highly incentivized to bring these claims. So when we talk, let's talk about that, and then I want to get to the the, the role. Of, it sounds like this is not a union driven thing. Generally, it's not a union driven thing. It is private lawyers, uh, and it is driven by them, and they are spending a tremendous amount of money on search optimization and reaching potential new clients through the internet and through their phones. Uh, what they're saying, bring... it's a bit like those personal injury lawyer ads and that you see on the freeway. Is it that kind of thing? I've had people show up to depositions in PAGA cases where they think they're there to talk about how they were harassed or wrongfully terminated, and their attorney never brought that claim. Their attorney brought a, a PAGA claim. Wow. So let's talk about these lawyers. What kind of lawyer? Because you hear about... Um... The, the, these different terms, you know, there's, and, and, and again, maybe everyone knows this, maybe it's, it's just slightly different terminology for me compared to, to, to what I'm used to from, you know, the UK in the, in the old days. But um, you, you hear the sort of, tr especially within, when you get to the political aspect of this, which is that the, there's an overwhelmingly democratic um, bent here. I mean, the, the lawyers, uh, I mean, I remember this from my days running Crowdpack, are very well organized political donors and tend to support Democrats. Uh, overwhelmingly, actually. And is it that you hear about trial lawyers, you hear about tort reform, some of these terms that people yeah. make. Can, can you just sort of put it in the con put those in the context of this? Yeah. So there's a there's a separate group out there. It's called CELA. It's the California Employer Employee Employment Lawyers Association. So CELA and CELA is the rough organization of these lawyers that are bringing lots of these claims. And Many of them are, are very sharp. They're very good adversaries uh, and advocates for their clients. Um, but, but they're being incentivized by the law here that allows for the recovery of attorney's fees on these penalties. And they're being brought in such frequency that it's creating a tremendous amount of incentive. And so what, what, what's the role, what, what, when we talk about tort reform, because the other I've heard in the context of this as well, it's, for example, in Texas, you don't get this because they've done tort reform. Is that the right connection to make? Well, it's that they haven't allowed something, a vehicle like this to pass. Um, there have been other attempts to go ahead and pass similar laws like this in Oregon and Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So far, those have been uh, so far, those have been held back and at bay. Um, but, uh, but California went ahead and, and passed this and it creates the vehicle. I, I wouldn't say tort reform has occurred in Texas because they haven't had to reform anything. This type of vehicle just hasn't been built there yet. But so but, but what is tort? I mean, how does that fit into this conversation? Well, I think there's, there's two, there's two lines of attack in this area that are beneficial to employers, uh, and that we think can can help. One is an initiative process. So mm -hmm. there is an initiative that'll be on the 2024 ballot uh, to try and reform uh, PAGA and go ahead and replace it with what's known as the Fair Pay and Employer Accountability Act. It It is meant to do what I think the original intent of PAGA was, mm -hmm. uh, where it requires the fully funding, the full funding of the DLSE to pursue these claims it eliminates the incentive of plaintiff's attorney's fees recovery for mm -hmm. bringing PAGA matters. 
and it puts everything in the hands of the government. And so the government will decide whether this case is worthy enough to pursue and the penalties be recovered by the state, as opposed to being driven by attorneys out there looking for issues. It will be employees bringing real issues to the DLSE, and then the Division of Labor Standards Enforcement will bring these on behalf of California. So you so so the theory there is you're more likely to end up. What was the number you said? Twelve cases rather than the six thousand. Well, I think the idea is that you're going to fully fund the DLSE so they can bring the meritorious claims. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be more than 12, certainly. Uh, it also doubles the statutory and civil penalties for uh, willful violators. Uh, and it requires 100% of the penalties to go out to the employees rather than the state retaining 75%. Yeah, that, see, that was such an amazing fact that you told me that 75% actually goes to the government. It's like a tax, basically. It's a it's a hidden tax that uh, only yeah. the employer that that either got sued or is willing to talk to friends and other business people about will find out about. It's amazing. So so this is that's this all sounds very sensible. Sounds like it's um it's 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 retaining protection for workers, but actually removing the incentives for these kind of I don't want to is is the right it's not even frivolous it's more than frivolous this is you know harass it's almost harassment. Well, I think it's taking it's taking what clearly is the wrong incentive that the laws created. It's eliminating that bad incentive and then looking to bring real, real claims against real violators out there. Yes. And avoid the ticky tacky ones where people feel like, you know what, I've got to pay. I've got to pay the ransom. Uh, I've got yeah. to be wounded, not dead here. And, that, and just to be clear, you're you're on the side of the, I mean, you fight these claims for employers, right? That's what that's your role. Correct. I mean, I'm I'm a I'm a management side or employer side uh, attorney, so I only do this type of law dealing with employers and their mm -hmm. and claims by their employees. But yeah, you get to pick a side in this area, and, and right. I, I picked a side long ago. And is it? And who's behind the ballot initiative? So you know, the, it's really a grassroots. Uh, issue. I'm not involved in the actual initiative, um, mm -hmm. but it's been put on the ballot for, for voters to decide. And I think it makes a lot of sense when you think about all of the money that is awarded going to the workers instead of being siphoned off by the state uh, and a an attorney. It, it's yeah. pretty amazing. I mean, when, when you yeah. really get down to this, Steve, let's take $100,000 as a settlement amount. A third of that is immediately going to be applied as attorney's fees to the court. Right. That's going to leave $63,000. 75% of the remainder is going to the state. That means well more than half of the $100,000 is not going to the workers. Yeah. And under the initiative, you're at least going to have 100% of the penalties recovered, and you're not going to create the feeding frenzy of plaintiff's recovery of attorney's fees that are leading to a lot of these claims. So who's as we look forward to that uh, next year, what's that going to look like in terms of for and against? So are you, are you going to have the lawyers furiously defending their, their, their grift here um, by running ads saying, don't take away workers' protection for, you know, don't let them do wage theft or whatever. Is that what we're going to see? You're going to have very uh, well-heeled and well-funded 
plaintiff's lawyers that are going to be able to try to go ahead and, and maintain PAGA in its current form. Because mm-hmm. uh, they benefit to the tune of $700 million, as you said. Correct. I mean, their their benefit is direct. The, yeah. the interesting thing, and, and I think the disingenuous part of some of their arguments will be, right now the workers get 25% of the penalties. Under the initiative, they get 100% of the penalties. And they're out there saying that they represent the worker. Uh, the worker will do better yeah. when a claim is brought under this new law. Interesting. So this is a really big deal, this law. And, and, and um, if it passes... I mean, it sounds like, given given what you're saying, that so many companies are, are thinking about it and worrying about it. This will be a huge factor in, in, in kind of lifting some of those burdens on business that we think about the whole time. I mean, I think it will certainly make uh, make the business climate in California better, mm-hmm. uh, having this in place. Uh, and I think it, ba- it looks for that balance you initially talked about, the balance between making sure the workers are protected, that the, the law isn't abused. Uh, people still have remedies that that they can go after, but they're going to go after, uh, get 100% of the recovery. The state's going to go after the penalties, and they're not going to be incentivized to bring all of these claims in such high numbers by the attorneys. And what is the union's position on it, actually? Because it's an interesting one. You, it's, not, it's not obvious to me that they would be against this. It, it's not obvious to me either. Uh, you know, when... Can I just set that up a little bit better? Because generally, our our kind of the framework is anything that is, if you like, and using simplistic labels here, pro-business, yeah, um, is uh, opposed by the unions. That's typically how it goes. Um, But this is is pro-business, clearly, but it's also, as you've made clear, pro-worker. Yeah, and so which is always what we want. Actually, that's the nice. That's that's what I always say. We should be both. and it sounds like this is, but do you think the unions will buy that? You know, I don't know what the unions will do on this, uh, because one thing that 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 these types of lawsuits do is it, it weakens the ability of an employer to go ahead and, if they're at the bargaining table with the union, agree uh, to go ahead and raise wages or raise mm-hmm. benefits because they've been drained. Again, they're wounded, not dead, by having to pay out these amounts. And they may not have enough money to be at the bargaining table and give on the economics to the union that they otherwise would. Well, it sounds like it, that's for all these reasons. You you could find the unions, if not kind of supporting it, at least not not putting their weight to try and defeat it. I think that would be the hope. I mean, the hope would be that oh dear. Uh, that unions <laughs> that- would unions would come in and and either help or at least remain on the sidelines for the discussion. Yeah. It's just the way you said that makes me think, yeah, but you know, you, you, you're, you're smart. You're there. You know how it all works. Sounds like the politics will, will prevail is what I mean, you the, really think. The, the, the Sacramento Capitol is right over my right shoulder here uh, <laughs> and about two blocks away. So uh, I'm close enough to, to the epicenter of this to, to know that um, it, it may not work out. Yeah. Interesting. But I mean, it's fascinating. I'm so happy to have had the chance to talk to you about it. I'm sure we'll want to come back to it nearer the time. Um, but you say it's definitely, it's already qualified for the ballot, so it's definitely appearing, is it? It is. It's definitely appearing uh, November 5th. Everybody will have their say, 2024. Okay. Uh, and then in the interim, there's some court cases about whether these types of claims can be subject to arbitration, either in part or in whole, 
uh, and and that may have an effect on it as well. Brilliant. And is there anywhere um, is is there a kind of website with the ballot on it that people can look at it or find out more? Where would people go if they want to follow up? I believe there I believe there is, uh, but certainly the California Secretary of State uh, publishes all initiatives that will be on the various ballots once they go ahead and uh, and are uh, qualified. Uh, this one is known as the California Employee Civil Action Law Institute or initiative. And once you go ahead and search for that information, California Secretary of State should have some information on it. All right, there you go. By the way, one last thing. I mean, I'll just sort of, this is a comment and then we'll leave it there. Every time you get into one of these things, um, and this, you know, we've just had a deep dive on this particular area, but there are hundreds, thousands of, 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 th- of areas like this, and it all adds up to this incredible complexity and bureaucracy that, that we have in the state of California that I just find astonishing. Um, I remember when I was starting my company, I just couldn't believe how bureaucratic it was compared to England. And you think of California, you think of certainly America as the, you know, the home of free enterprise and free markets, whatever. And then you get here, and it's just unbelievable, the amount of bureaucracy, the, 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 the incredible dominance of unions, you know, you think, well, that went out out the door in, in the UK in the 1970s, early 1980s with Margaret Thatcher. And here you are in the in the US. It's, it's amazing to me. It's really amazing. And I think that people don't talk about it enough and assume that you can't change it. I think that's a it's a really interesting phenomenon to me. It, it really is. And and the, the length of the lawsuits are are enormous. They're two, three, sometimes more years than that, where if you look at how these employment disputes are dealt with in in England, they're over within a matter of months, uh, generally without a, a bunch of attorneys uh, running the meter and asking for their money as well. Uh, <laughs> it's at the table. Yeah. Well, they say America's run by lawyers. <laughs> so, you know, but, you know, including, but lawyers include you, Alden, and you're obviously on the right side of this. Uh, so we're very pleased to have had you here to explain it all. Thank you so much. I, w- I would be happy with this area going away and it destroying my business for the sake of everybody else's business. I, I could be a farmer. I could be a restaurateur. <laughs> uh, I'll go find some. Yeah, you see, that's probably why I feel this so strong, because I was a restauranter back in England. I had two restaurants, and so I, I can, I mean, we had nothing like this, you know, absolutely nothing. Amazing. All right. Um, thanks, Alden. Great to see you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Anytime. Well, how about that? That was a uh, fun-filled and very informative episode, if I don't mind saying myself. I hope you thought the same way. hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure you tell everyone about it. Um, Uh, Follow us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you back here soon for the next episode of The Steve Hilton Show.